The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal is to understand not only the details of what was going on at the time it was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. The reason, as stated before, is that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 states that God's Word, the Bible, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. Further, our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes 
his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit, who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. Now, if you will join me in opening your copy of God's word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, where we left off in our last episode. Here we return to the general proscriptive advice that Paul is giving to the Thessalonian church and by extension to us today. Here in verse 15, Paul says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Here, Paul reminds us, according to the Greater Westminster Catechism, that the ultimate purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In that vein, as we look at our lives temporally on this earth, we are reminded that our pursuit is not to seek vengeance or to become the top dog or to prove ourselves the best, carnally speaking, but rather our purpose and our goal in life is to proclaim the gospel, the good news, to give testimony and witness and an example to the whole world both in our word and on our deeds, so that God may, in fact, be glorified. If and when we intentionally render evil to another for revenge, we eliminate the possibility of our purpose and goal in life, which is to win people to Christ and to be sanctified as a result of persecution, or to be a testimony to onlookers, Instead, in its place, we establish a cheap substitute whose intent is usually revenge or our idea of justice. But the truth and reality is that God will judge all whom reject his gospel and his son, Christ. God will pass condemnation and punishment on all ungodliness and persecution of his saints. The last thing we need to do is to abandon our stewardship of the things of Christ and to include ourselves in the group to whom judgment is due because we failed to submit ourselves to God's will and purpose in our lives. So, what do we do? Verse 16, Rejoice evermore. In other words, whatsoever things, events, and people serve to move God's will and, to, and his purpose forward and increase our opportunities to witness or to be sanctified, we should rejoice. Since ultimately all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose, then ultimately we can rejoice in all things. You ask, is that it? No. Verse 16, what else? Pray without ceasing. Now this is not to say that Paul is saying in some sort of 
Guinness Book of World Records that we pray incessantly from the time that we get up until the time we get to bed and never stop. Rather, this is to say, as the original language would imply, that when we pray, we pray giving all that we have into that prayer so that God may be glorified, as we earlier stated. When we pray, we pray with all you have, leave nothing behind. Verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, this is not to say that we must or that we should give thanks for those things which are misfortune, calamity, or evil. Instead, we can adopt a perspective wherein even in the midst of that which is unpleasant, uh, adversity, hardship, trial, and even that which some would call quote-unquote evil, we can often find aspects, events, and outcomes which can and should be opportunities to give thanks to God for. Sometimes the things are easy to find. Other times we must rely upon our knowledge of God's sovereignty, which is to move all things to his good according to his purpose, even though right now, presently, we are not privy to what God is doing and what those things are. In the end, if nothing else, were it not for God and his goodness, I would not be around to draw breath and to observe whatever it is that happens, whether it be good or bad. More importantly, without his redemptive work in my life, I would not have opportunity in eternity to understand why it happened and how it worked for his overall good so that understanding it, I would eventually, seeing him in his finished work, I would give him glory. Verse 19, quench not the spirit. Here in the original, the word quench means to extinguish. Now, typically, this verse is trotted out by those in charismatic Pentecostal circles as a reaction to those who would attempt to stop or to place rules upon someone speaking in tongues. To this, I can only say that God's Holy Spirit is the author of many things, many gifts, all of which ultimately are intended to draw attention to the person, to the nature and attributes of Christ, and again, to glorify and honor God. If, in fact, under the circumstances, they do that, then fine, let God be praised. If, on the other hand, they distract from God, they bring disorder, dishonor to God, or they refocus the glory and honor to man, then there is good reason to question the source, or the motives, or both. On a more basic level, the Holy Spirit is that mechanism by which God himself indwells the believer and provides power, authority, 
victorious living through Christ's finished work, sanctification, etc. It is the Holy Spirit which baptizes us, teaches us, seals us, comforts us, and gives us utterance for those things of the heart, soul, and spirit which we cannot always put words to. Therefore, we must guard ourselves against thoughts, acts, and behaviors which extinguish the Holy Spirit. The question is, how do we extinguish the Holy Spirit? Well, obviously, ungodly, immoral, and carnal behavior would all tend to do this. But we should not forget that when we take credit for godly behavior, for sanctification, and for those gifts which God gives us, when in fact it is God working all these things through us, through his Holy Spirit, we in fact rob the Holy Spirit. We quench and extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit because we have already disavowed it via our own self-work. Why, therefore, would the Holy Spirit continue to work in the midst of ingratitude, disavowal, and or pride? Verse 20. Despise not prophesyings. Here in the original, the word prophesyings or prophecy is the Greek word prophetia. Usually we associate the word prophecy with someone who reveals God's hidden things by foretelling future events given to them by God. However, it is equally true that being a prophet can also mean one who gives discourse, teaching, or instruction emanating from divine inspiration or the Holy Spirit which declares or clarifies the purposes of God, whether by reproving and or admonishing the wicked, or by comforting the afflicted. The secondary definition seems to make more sense in the overall context because the only time that someone will dislike prophecy of the future is when it involves judgment and or disaster. However, it is much easier and more often the case that people are offended when preaching and or teaching from God's word reveals the fact that we are in sin or rebellion against God and must repent. So, in effect, we should not despise or be offended when God shines the light of his word into the crevices of our heart, mind, and soul to reveal sin. Rather, we should give thanks and be glad that God chooses to forgive us, refine us, and conform us instead of destroying us. Remember, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Here, the word prove means to test, to examine, to scrutinize, to see whether a thing is genuine or not. This means that the Christian life should be exemplified in all ways like that of a Berean, 
we should be testing, proving, and examining all things. Our entire world and life view should flow from Scripture, which is God's revelation of Himself, as the ultimate source of authority, meaning, morals, truth, reality, beauty, and significance. Those things which measure up to God's Word in the totality of its context, we should hold fast to, we should adopt, we should follow, we should embrace. And those things which prove false, we should reject. Verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. What this means is that God's elect, His chosen children, our walk, our fruit, our behavior, is the badge of ambassadorship as citizens of heaven. We must constantly be wary of what and how our behavior appears to the world. We don't want to have any unnecessary things in our life to provide an appearance which brings shame, ridicule, disrepute to the body of Christ. At the same time, the definition of what is quote-unquote evil and what is not is ultimately determined by God's word in context and not the court of the world according to feelings, secular opinion, cultural consensus, and so forth. So, there will be some occasions when the world will redefine quote-unquote evil and quote-unquote good to suit its own agendas and then attempt to apply incorrect pejorative terms to Christians and or the church in an effort to create pressure on the church and or Christians to conform themselves to the definitions of the world rather than God and his word. Verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the word sanctify in the Greek, Hagiozo is to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. The root of this word basically means saint. The word is highly instructive as to the theology and reality of sanctification. Many think that the application and definition of the word saint to any person means that that person has achieved one or more miracles. They have achieved a life of perfection and goodness by virtue of their character, their works, their deeds, their selfless behavior. But in reality, according to God's word, being a saint, being sanctified, is more correctly understood as any person who is like a broken or cracked vessel. This vessel having no fit use other than to be discarded and destroyed. Yet, despite its unworthiness, God selects the vessel, as is, and fills it with his nature. God makes the vessel worthy by his presence, by his grace. 
God goes on to progressively repair the vessel, to decorate it internally and externally, and to conform the vessel to his fit purpose and use. It is God who sovereignly selects the vessel and sets it apart from the other vessels. It is God who sanctifies the vessel and completes it. The vessel simply surrenders itself and gives thanks for whatever purpose and use that God chooses. In the same way, Paul prays that God would do that which God is already intent on doing for those whom he has chosen. Thus, since God is going to do and achieve what he has sovereignly chosen to do, Paul's prayer is really a reminder for the Thessalonians and for us to be mindful of their and our sanctification and to always be submissive and obedient to that process. In fact, we should be so utterly submissive that sanctification reaches and conforms our entire person, spirit, soul, and body, so that at long last, when Christ appears, we will be blameless because sanctification has reached its full extent and we are conformed to the image and nature of Christ. Verse 24, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Here, verse 24 is a follow-up commentary on verse 23 regarding who is the one starting, continuing, and completing sanctification. God, the one who sovereignly calls his elect, will also perform that which he has called. This is the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, or the golden chain, as some call it, of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It is God who sovereignly calls and elects those whom he chooses, and it is also God who completes the process and who does it, according to verse 24. He is responsible for the entire process from beginning to end. Verse 25, Brethren, pray for us. Verse 26, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto to all the holy brethren. And finally, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So, by summary, as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, by reminder in our rearview mirror, Paul's motivation for writing the Thessalonian letter was to comfort exhort to encourage the Thessalonian church to be sanctified in the midst of persecution. Likewise, all of the things that we're talking about in summary can also be applied to the church, the outcalled ones, those that are chosen as God's elect today. Secondly, 
Paul addresses some doctrinal errors and or points of confusion which had come to his attention in the Thessalonian church. Thirdly, Paul gives instructions, reminders regarding the hope of Christ's return. As we break down the book of 1 Thessalonians, we can look at what's going on chapter by chapter. In chapter 1, Paul gives general salutation and a brief summary reminder of the founding of the Thessalonian church. In chapter 2, Paul gives a brief resume, including the history in Thessalonica with their attitude of self-support and a willingness to work as an example of how all believers should conduct themselves. In chapter 3, having caught up their history in Thessalonica, Paul turns his reason for sending Timothy, which is to encourage them in the midst of persecution. This encouragement consists of the reminder that the church is to expect persecution and tribulation as part of the condition of being a follower of Christ. In chapter 4, Paul turns to doctrinal issues in two parts. Part 1 being sanctification. And in this case, A, sanctification meaning that true believers will avoid the issue of sexual immorality. The use and treatment of our physical bodies affects our spirit and soul, as well as the physical bodies, souls, and spirits of others, and our relationship and fellowship with Christ. The inappropriate use or abuse of our own or another's body, soul, or spirit via sexual immorality is an inappropriate use or abuse of God's property since our body, soul, and spirits are given and belong to God. B. True believers must conduct themselves honestly and honorably in all areas since our daily conduct is a testimony to the world around us as to the genuineness of our walk and fellowship with God. The second doctrinal issue that Paul discussed in chapter 4 was death and eschatology. Part A of this was that death is an inevitable and logical consequence as a result of sin for all mankind. True believers have hope and a guarantee that although we may physically die, our spirit-slash-soul will go immediately to be present with the Lord, while our physical bodies will be raised again to incorruption when Christ returns. This is different from the unbeliever who has no such hope. B. Those who succumb to physical death prior to Christ's return will be the first to have their physical bodies raised to incorruption and be with the Lord. Then those who are still alive at Christ's return will have their physical bodies changed into incorruption. They will bypass physical death and both their glorified bodies as well as their soul-slash-spirit will be with the Lord 
joining the first group together. In chapter 5, we saw three parts. Part 1 was a soteriological and eschatological reassurance. A, the Thessalonian believers were aware and had been taught by Paul regarding eschatological timing issues of Christ's return for his church. It is only those who walk in darkness, those who don't know the Lord, who will be and are unprepared and as a result will be caught off guard as a thief in the night. Believers, by contrast, walk in the light. They know the Lord and thus they are not caught off guard. B. Believers are admonished and encouraged to walk in the light and to be sober. C. The church, the outcalled ones, are not appointed unto God's wrath. 2. Christian conduct. A. Respect, honor, and cherish those in leadership within the church. B. Comfort, exhort, support, and be patient towards those who are less strong in the faith. And C. General conduct, attitude, and behavior toward prayer, thankfulness, spiritual gifts, prophecy, and personal witness. And then lastly, number three, we have the closure of the letter to the Thessalonian church. This concludes the summary. Now, in closing, 1 Thessalonians is clearly a letter written by Paul to the Thessalonian church concerning the situation and circumstances which were going on in and around the church at Thessalonica. However, as we examine each chapter and its specific content, what we conclude is that based upon the totality of Scripture according to a proper Reformed exegetical understanding, is that every subject addressed by Paul to the Thessalonians, whether soteriological, doctrinal, ecclesiastical, or eschatological, can and does also apply to each and every true church in any day or age. There is nothing in 1 Thessalonians which would not be sound theology or advice in today's church where that church seeks to be biblically based. The conclusion is that 1 Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul but inspired by God's Spirit because only God can inspire subject material which remains pertinent and timeless. Therefore, every Christian who wishes to increase and encourage their sanctification can and should read and study this letter according to chapter 5 verse 27. That being, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, which inspired these words via Paul to the Thessalonian church, 
would likewise inspire, encourage, and sanctify the hearts of all those whom you have chosen as your elect today. May we each have courage and endurance to withstand against the persecution of this world unto victory in Christ. May we each remain sober, walk in the light, and proclaim the good news unto the soon coming return of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach Baruch HaShem. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. This episode concludes the book of 1 Thessalonians. Please join me for our next selection in God's Word. Thank you for listening. Trust in it.